0: Today's sermon will be taken from Ruth chapter 1. This is the word of the Lord. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. There were Ephratites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went to the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabit, Moabite wives. The name of the ones was Oprah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Mahlon and Chilian died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return to each you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead, and with me. The Lord grant that you may find the rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted their voices and wept, and they said to her, No, We will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have an husband. If I should say I have a hope, even if I should have husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it exceedingly bitter for me for your sake, that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For, you, for where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God, where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And a woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara.
1: Two quick, one quick announcements, and one just kind of emphasis of what Chipta said earlier. Um, uh, We have a mercy ministry effort that we've been doing every month with uh, Pantiasuan Karnakasi. And the next meeting we have will be on uh, October 28th. All right, so if you're in a part of that ministry, put that on calendars. If you're not yet a part of that ministry but want to be, let us know. We'll, we'll put you in and add your name into the list of people who've been serving. The kids have been great. We've been having a lot of fun activities with them. I think last time we went ice skating, right? Yeah, and that was, that was really, really great. They beat us in soccer and other things. So it's, it's been fun. So please join us if you want to be part of that. And also, just want to repeat one of the announcements Chipta said. reminder that September 23rd will be our membership meeting. slash. We, need a, we don't call it a meeting. More people will come if we don't call it a meeting. So a membership hangout. And uh, Servant Team Appreciation Week. So please come. We're, we're going to have a buffet. We're going to have food. We're going to thank you guys for serving this church in such a way that we couldn't uh, if, if left without you. So we just wanted to show our appreciation, and we'll have announcements. We'll update you on some of the things going on at the church, among other things. So please come to that September 23rd if you're a member, or if you, are, if you went through the membership class and will be a member before then, we'd also love to have you with us. All right? All right. Let's get to the sermon. So the past few weeks, we've been talking or going through the book of John. If you've been with us, we've been going through, and now we're, I think we're done with chapter six, and we're going to begin in chapter seven, but to this week, and I think for the next four or five weeks, we're going to take a break and do another book. Now usually, when we take a break through the sermon or through the series of John, we go to a minor prophet. We choose one of the 12 minor prophets, which is the last 12 books of the Old Testament, but today, or at the next four or five weeks, we're going to do Ruth. To be honest, there's no particular reason of why we chose Ruth. We just thought it'd be a good mix-up from, um, from the genres and, and the, the things we've been doing so far. So Ruth is a really, really interesting book. I've been blessed by studying it. And it's really one book that's meant to be read in one sitting. And it's about, really, the, the, the major theme in it is God's redemptive history. And now, when I use the term redemptive history, or God's redemptive story, what I mean is, the story of how God redeems his people. That's that's what that means. Now, although this bigger it's a bit about God's redemptive story, although this story is about God, how God redeems his people, the author does address certain issues throughout the book in relation to God's redemptive story that might not seem to have anything to do with God's redemptive story. And the question we see here in the first chapter is the question about human suffering. But first, before we get there, since this story is about God's redemptive history, in order to understand Ruth, I want to first see how our first chapter in our book connects with God's redemptive history in the Old Testament so far. I don't usually do pictures like this, but there it is. I think it can be helpful for us to understand Ruth before we get into it. So let's, let's take a look about God's redemptive history in the Bible so far. Let's, let's just start from Genesis, uh, Exodus. You guys remember what happened in Exodus, the big, the big story there? Moses saved God's people out of the slavery of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. That's God's redemptive story in the book of Exodus. And then you move along to Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is Israel's travel from Egypt into the promised land. And then, all of a sudden, before they entered into the promised land of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses died, and a guy named Joshua replaced him which is what the next book is about, the book of Joshua, where finally, finally Israel enters into the promised land, led not by Moses, but by Joshua. And then you're in the promised land, everything's good, right? God's redemptive story is apparently done, fulfilled? No. We see Joshua die. And then uh, when Joshua died, we go to the book of Judges, where we see that in the promised land, Israel was left without a leader, without a king and then they would sin really badly because no one was there to guide and lead them. And then when they sin, God would punish them, and then when God punished them, He'd also raise up judges, rulers, to then bring them back to repentance. And then they'd repent, and then guess what happened? They sinned again. And then guess what happened after that? God raised up another judge, and then the cycle just kept going, kept going, kept going, until we end at the last verse of the book of Judges, and this is what it says. Chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In this tension, we now move to the book of Ruth. What is the first verse in chapter 1 in the book of Ruth? What does it say? In the days when the judges ruled. So these, this is, all this is happening when the judges ruled, when there is no king in Israel, when there is no one to guide and lead and redeem and Protect them. And it's really interesting to see. I love this. I love this about the book of Ruth. You see, all the way from Exodus to Judges, the Bible pretty much focuses on God's redemptive history, God's redemptive story of redeeming his people, of saving his people, on the, quote-unquote, top-level management. right? Moses, he's like the big guy, doing the big things leading people in front of everyone and then Joshua, the the big guy going into Canaan these are like the top players and in the big wars that all the judges did they're all very visible God's redemptive story was done by the quote unquote people on top but then ever so suddenly the story of God's redemptive history moves from these quote unquote big players to a story of a small family in the suburbs who didn't even have enough food they had to leave their country, Bethlehem, to go to Moab. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. And everyone's attention, while everyone is looking at the big players in these big cities, God moves his attention to a small family of four in the suburbs. It has romance to it. It's personal. And this is where God's story of redemption continues, through the grief and suffering of a family that's experienced in the suburbs, forgotten through the selfless acts of these villagers. Here are the three points for today. The temptation to speculate in suffering, the way we are called to behave while we suffer, the kind of person who suffers well the temptation to speculate and suffering, the way we are called to behave while we suffer, and the kind of person who suffers well. So pray with me, and then we'll begin in our first point. Father, this morning began with a lot of unexpected interruptions, with a lot of unexpected technolo- the t- technology complications and points and, and music instruments messing up. Lord, I pray that you steady our hearts, that you allow us to truly read your word and come to it with the reverence that it deserves. You, the King, have spoken, and we now here study it and learn it. Help the gospel deep seep into our hearts. Help your word and who you are consume us even more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, point number one. The temptation to speculate and suffering. So, in verse 1, we saw the setting, right? What was going on, where was going on, the time when it was going on. In verse 2, now we see the people involved. The name of the man was Elimelech, if that's how you pronounce it, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Mahlon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. Now, very quickly, just from these two verses the author immediately addresses a sensitive topic that might have caused a lot of confusion for the readers at the time of human suffering. Questions that you and I may have today. And the question is this. Why would God allow such a calamity, this, this famine, to happen to this family? Why? And it's, it's tempting to speculate, isn't it, when, when times of suffering happens. I know... I know, the explanation is God must not be in control of this famine. If if He could have stopped this famine, then, then He would have. That's the explanation. But then you look at the instances of famine throughout the Old Testament, guess who's the one always in control of all of them? God. God caused it. Every time, Genesis 12.10, Genesis 26.3, Genesis 47.4, 1 Kings 17.20, and I have a lot more. He is in control of the famine. Okay, so... That's confusing, right? There there must be a reason why God would cause this famine on this family. I know the reader might be tempted to speculate again. Perhaps perhaps this family is a sinful family. Maybe they, they did something bad to deserve this. But then if you take a look at their names, it actually points to them being a very good family. A God-fearing family. As some of you probably know, back then, names were more than just a way you call somebody else. Names were a representation of who the person was or who the parents wanted the child to be. Elimelech, the father of this family, you know what that name means? God is king. <laughs> Naomi means pleasant one. Although the names of the children uh, are unclear, but it's a parent from the father's name, this is a God-fearing family. I mean, the guy's name is God is King. So the famine was not caused because God wasn't in control. It wasn't caused as a form of a specific punishment for a specific evil his family did or something like that. So why did it happen? And before the reader is able to catch their breath and settle this tension in their mind, the story continues, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. Think about it. A man whose name is God is king. In order to avoid his family from starvation, he left his hometown, became a resident alien in Moab, a neighboring country. Then he died, leaving behind his widowed wife and two fatherless kids. I can imagine the readers back then, perhaps some of us today, asking why? Perhaps even a hint of frustration behind the tone of that question. I get that. I get that. I'm, I'm like that. If anything like me, it doesn't take much pain for me to ask the question, why? Elena woke up at 2 a.m. last night. Guess what I asked God? Why, God? Why is this happening to me right now? It, isn't, it doesn't take much for us to ask that question. And why are we so curious about why can we sometimes even be addicted to having the answer to why? Well, because knowing why gives, gives us a bit of peace, doesn't it? It gives us a sense of rest. If, if I can just know why, then I can neatly tie up these loose ends with a tidy bow. And at least I can know that my pain wasn't pointless. There's a purpose to it. There's a reason for it. So what we do is we end up speculating. Perhaps it's because of this or it's because of that. But in these first three verses, the author, as if knowing our tendency to speculate in order to soothe ourselves by tying these loose ends with neat bows, takes every single bow away. This family suffered not because God wasn't involved. God is always involved in famines. Not because this is a specifically an evil family who did something evil. So then what do, what, what do we do? If you're, if you're like me, again... If I can't make sense of why this happened because of the past, I go to the future. I start speculating of things in the future. For example, I might think that, you know what, Um, maybe God has a better plan for them in the future. That's why this bad thing happened to me, because of something in the future. And then let's continue, verse 4. These, talking about Naomi's two sons, um, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there for about 10 years. See? There it is. Something better in the future. That's why this famine happened, because God was going to bless them with a family, with, with descendants, which is, by the way, considered the greatest blessing of the culture at the time. There's my neat bow. Now this all makes sense. This is why God would allow this to ha- uh, suffering to happen. So let's continue. Verse 5, And both Mahlon and Chilion died. What? So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. <laughs> and there it goes. Just like that. Our last bow that we hung on to. The last speculative resort that we so often go to to soothe ourselves from pain. Was taken away by the author. No husband, no descendants, no nothing. Every single bow that the readers that we might have had ready to use to neatly tie these loose ends together was gently taken away by the author and he never gives them back. It's not because God wasn't in control, it's not because of specific punishment of a past sin, it's not to advance their future personal family retirement plan, descendants. Naomi was in such distress. She lost her husband. She lost her two kids. Most likely had no trade to support herself. And she was a foreign resident in a foreign land and had therefore less rights than people who were of that nationality. In verse 5, she was so distraught the author didn't even mention her by name anymore. She was no longer Naomi the pleasant one. She's just what? The woman This pain was so unimaginably horrific as if she had lost her own identity. Have you ever felt like this? Gone through something so painful, it's almost like you lost your sense of self or perhaps close to it. Perhaps in our marriages, past relationships, financial issues, family issues, health issues... Or perhaps some of us may be in such a situation right now. You see, the reason why the question why is so emotive to us is not just because it's a curious inquiry to Naomi's situation. It's an inquiry to our own situation. Why did God allow me to go through that? Why did God, why is he allowing me to go through it right now? And we, we speak speculation, to so the answer why? Because it, at least it gives us some sort of consolation. Now, at the end of the passage, or at the end of the book, the author does deal with this, and, he, and although he does take away our, our neat bows and, so to speak, leaves us empty-handed, he doesn't leave us there. He gives us something better. He wants to give us something better than just speculative attempts to self-soothe. But before we get there, let's move along in the narrative of the story. First, the story focuses on the interaction between Orpah, Naomi, and Ruth interaction they had in the midst of deep suffering. Point number two, the way we are called to behave while we suffer. Now, I realize this section of the passage is going to feel a bit unrealistic. Okay, the author describes Naomi, Ruth, and Orpah interacting and behaving in such a way in the midst of their suffering in an almost unbelievably selfless way. So selfless that to follow their example, it'll almost feel like it's unattainable. And I get that. It doesn't feel, like, it doesn't feel attainable to me. But but for now, let's just go with the narrative. Where we see here the tremendous value of the small and often unrecognized everyday acts of faithfulness we are called to do toward one another. Remember, God's redemptive history focused on Moses and Joshua and the judges, these public acts of big-time faithfulness that thousands of people saw. And God is saying, look at the faithfulness of these small three villagers widowed often forgotten woman, not before the public eye. I use this as well. Let's go to verse 6 and 7. So these women heard the famine was over in Israel because the Lord visited Israel or helped Israel. See, once again, it's clear in the text that God is sovereign over the famine. He could have visited earlier, couldn't he? So Naomi went back, accompanied by Ruth and Orpah presumably to make sure that Naomi arrives there safely. But then verse 8 to 9, you see Naomi uh, telling Ruth and Orpah to go back to Moab. But Naomi said to her daughter, two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. Take a look at Naomi's words. It said, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. House. Usually, when you tell somebody to go home in the Old Testament, you tell them to go home to their father's house. Why is it Naomi this time says, mother's house? Well, in Song of Solomon, chapter 3 and chapter 8, you see that the mother's house, there's a connotation of a place where you find a lover, a husband, a, wife, a spouse. Go back to your mother's house. That's what that is. In some, Naomi saying here, go. You're young. Find yourself. Husbands, get married, have children, live your life. Don't worry about me. Now, I want to be sensitive. The wording here isn't to mean that one must be married and have kids to live their life. It's not what I'm saying. But it's written in such a way because in that culture and age, having descendants was the greatest and pinnacle of all blessings. That was good fate. So now me saying, I don't want to rob you of all that. Go, go home. Don't finish your journey with me. I'm fine. But yet, through Naomi's words, we also see not only Naomi's selflessness of telling her two daughters-in-laws to go home, but also Ruth and Orpah's selflessness. Look, Naomi said, Go, return to each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Ruth and Orpah has dealt kindly with Naomi and with the dead. With What does that mean? He's saying... Your my, my children are dead, your husbands are dead, you are no longer bound by law to provide and care and protect me. Right? Because the legal obligation Ruth and Orpah had for Naomi was severed when their husbands died. And anything they do to care for Naomi post-death of their husbands is an act of voluntary will, not of required obligation. But yet they cared. And selflessly accompanied her. And remember, remember, these two women just lost their husbands of ten years as well. They were grieving too. But in their selfless act of faithfulness, they, they placed Naomi and prioritized her well-being, even at their own expense. And at the end of Naomi's monologue, she kissed them goodbye, signaling that I'm officially nulling this relationship. We're done. Go. Leave. Verse 10. What did Naomi and Ruth do? Did they leave? No. And they said to to her, "No, we will return with you to your people. Why? You've been given away out. Go!" But they insisted. They wanted to go with her all the way back to Bethlehem. And then Naomi countered again their selfless. Act with even a more selfless act. Verse 11 to 13 pretty much said, we don't have to get to it. Go, go with me. I can't have kids anymore. I can't provide you with the descendants and family you want. Go, leave me, I'll be fine. Then finally, after Naomi insisted, in verse 14, Orpah finally left. She kissed her mother-in-law and went back, went back to Moab. Now, it's very important to note what Orpah did here when she left Naomi was not an act of evil. It wasn't selfish. The author isn't trying to portray this as something that was evil or selfish, but as something that was understandable and justifiable. Any reader at the time would have looked at Oprah's actions and said, as she walked away, fading into the distance, nothing but respect for this woman, admiration. The scene of her walking away would have been accompanied with applauses and cheers by the readers. What a woman all she would give up for her ex-mother-in-law that she is no longer bound by law to protect. My goodness, they would, they would have clapped her going away. Well done. You've gone above and beyond. But then, as meaning to shock the readers, the author, without a pause, moves the scene away from or- Orpah back to Ruth and says what? But Ruth clung to her. This is absolutely bizarre. Ruth, sweetie... Go. Leave me. It's okay. You're going to risk becoming the worst tragedy this culture has in mind, which is spouseless and descendantless? For what? You have no more obligation to take care of me. Go. A commentator said Orpah did the sensible thing, expected thing, Ruth, the extraordinary and unexpected. Verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. She's saying, I'm not just going to make sure you arrive safely at Bethlehem. I'm going to hang out there with you. Your people, my people. Your God will be my God. Meaning she's left Shemosh, the false God of Moab, to Yahweh, the true God. I'm there, I'm yours. Where you die, I will die, and there I'll be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Unreal. I mean, Naomi and Ruth, two women, one of them lost two children and a husband, the other lost a husband, both in deep mourning, neither of them, by law, obligated to serve and care for the other, both had future hopes destroyed, future security and provision taken away. Anyone would have understood if they wanted to be placed first in this moment of suffering. Anyone would have understood that. Of course you'd want to be prioritized, right? Now look at the grief you're in. Yet both of them were so consumed by the need and well-being of the other, they were willing to even give up more stuff to make sure the other was blessed, even if it means their own lives would be disadvantaged even more. All this while in deep mourning. Guys, I don't even behave like this to my wife and kids who I am by God's law obligated to serve and prioritize. Not even when I'm really, really happy. (laughs) I don't. This text is so challenging. Not only challenges the level of faithfulness we think we have, I give my wife the last bite of the dessert and I think I'm being selfless. And that's on a good day. On a bad day, I'm taking that bite. And I pat myself in the back. Not only does it challenge the level of faithfulness or selflessness we think we have, but also challenges the motivation for our safe faithfulness. Are we faithful to God and selfless behind closed doors, as we are in the public eye? As we are faithful, are, as we fa- are we faithful to our family members and our friends away from public eye? Do we have the same intentionality to serve God in other areas of life where? might not be so visible? What about our faithfulness and our holiness in relationships with your girlfriend and your boyfriends behind closed doors? Small acts of faithfulness nobody sees, often forgotten. Do you put as much intensity into those things as you do in the big public services? Because God does. And here we see God moving his redemptive story forward even through these often forgettable and seemingly hidden figures behind the big events going on. Now, as you read this, if you're like me, you will feel this is a level of safe, selflessness and faithfulness that is just bizarre and unattainable. I, I feel that. I do. How could I ever grow and become this kind of person? I can barely even survive in times of grief myself. How can I prioritize others and be such, live in such a selfless way to God and others? Let's move to our last point. We're going we're gonna to pack a lot in this point, so stick with me as we continue. The kind of person who suffers well. All right, let's continue in the story of Naomi. Finally, the Naomi and Ruth go back. They arrive in Bethlehem, and we see two things here in how Naomi responded to the people in Bethlehem that shows how it is we are to suffer well. First, she did not minimize or lie about how painful it was. Second, she kept an underlying trust of God through it all. Let's, let's take a look. Verse 19 to 20. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. Stirred here has a connotation of joy. And the woman said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi, which means pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. First, she did not minimize or lie or suppress or avoid how painful it was. I went away full, she said, and came back empty. What does that mean? I, I came away full. What do you mean full? You, you didn't have food. You, you were in famine. Yeah, but I had my family. And, and now I have food. The famine's over. But I don't have my family. I'm empty. She did not lie or suppress about how hard it was. But second, he also see, through this honest suffering, she kept an underlying radical trust in God. Three ways. We're going to get into the Hebrew here a little bit, so stick with me, but I think it's significant. One, Naomi sees, uh, we see Naomi acknowledging God is in full control. Two, we see Naomi acknowledging God is justified in all his acts, although she may not know why he did it. He's justified nonetheless. Three, Naomi knows God somehow meant it for good. God is in control. He's justified in his acts. Something good will happen from it. Okay. Okay. Let's dissect Naomi's words, verses 20 and 21. First, Naomi knew God is in control. Look at how she described God in verse 20 and 21. Before this, she described God as the Lord. In Hebrew, that's Yahweh. All of a sudden, she used a term that she never used before, and here in English, is translated as the Almighty. In Hebrew, it's Shaddai. Why is this significant? Because every time in the Old Testament, when God is addressed as Shaddai, it's always in the context of Him being the cosmic ruler of all things. Shaddai has caused this to me. The Lord has caused this to me. He's in control. Even though this drought and famine and this death, he's in control. Second, she trusted not only that God is in control, but whatever he does, he's justified in his act. Verse 21, the Lord testified against me. Testify there is legal courtroom language. Meaning whatever reason Shaddai had in bringing all of this about, He's legally justified in his testimony. And though I may not understand what this is about, no one has the right to bring charge against him. He's justified. So one, Naomi knows God is in control. Two, though it can't comprehend it, know he's justified in the acts Shaddai brings about. Third, the last word we're going to talk about, is I want to note the word word Naomi uses for calamity, or at least the word the author uses to describe what Naomi used for calamity, the end of verse one is the word Hera? When the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Hera upon me. In Hebrew, in the Old Testament, the word Hera almost occurs every single time God brings about a calamity that then will later bring about something better. Uh, Exodus five twenty two, Numbers 11, 11. 1 Kings 17, 20, Psalm 44. If you have any more questions about this, we can go through it. But every time something bad happens... And something good, God brings something good to come out from it, is described as Hera. So let's summarize. In short, how does Naomi suffer? She was honest about it. This is painful. This hurts. I feel empty. I feel bitter. But yet through it all, my God is still my God. He's brought calamity upon me, but hasn't abandoned me. He's still in it, sovereign over it all, Shaddai. And although the calamity I do not understand, he is testified and justified, commits no injustice. And somehow, though I don't understand it, this will finally be meant not for malicious harm, but for good to come out of this calamity, Hera. Let me summarize it one more time. Stick with me. I'm still going to be honest about how much it hurts, but the controller of the cosmos, Shaddai, And the just judge of the universe, the testifier, I trust at the end will do what is right, although I don't immediately understand the cause of this calamity. Hera. Now, I know this seems like a stretch, just getting this conclusion from these three random Hebrew words, but this theme has been clear throughout the whole passage, not just from these three words. Look at verse 8. When Naomi encouraged Ruth and Orpah to go home, what did she say? Go, return each of you to her mother's house, may... Who deal kindly with you? May the Lord deal kindly with you. Who does Naomi place her hope in, in the midst of this tragedy? Who is it she claims will guide, protect, and deal kindly with Ruth and Orpah when they go back? The Lord will. The same Lord who brought this calamity upon them is the same Lord she hopes in. Something better will happen. Now, we're, we're going to end here, and this is also the kicker. If you remember point one, I warned us to not speculate. Now, some of us may ask, wouldn't this be speculating? Naomi's saying something better will happen. Isn't that an act of speculation? She doesn't know. Isn't this the thing you warned us not to do in the first point? No. This isn't speculation. It's different. At this point, we must leave Naomi's mind for one second and go to the author's mind. I don't know if Naomi was thinking this or not, but the author was. Stick with me. What good at the end of this calamity did the author have in mind, of, of this hera that the author have in mind? See, today, when we say something good will happen out of this suffering, we often mean um, uh, it will advance our personal agendas. I lost this job because there's a better job in store for me in the future God has. That's how we mean it, right? Or I broke up with this boy or this girl because there's someone better for me in the future. When we say something better will happen at the end, we often think about it in terms of advancements of personal agendas. But this is not what the author means when he said Hera. The calamity, the good that will happen at the end, is not advancing Naomi's personal agenda. The author means here it will advance God's redemptive history. Remember, this book must be seen under the context of redemptive history, God's story of saving his people. Now, unlike the advancement of our specific personal agendas, which God never promised in the Bible, the advancement of his redemptive history he has promised in the Bible, and therefore is not speculation. You see? If I say God did this so that I can get a better job, that's speculation. I don't, it could be true, but I don't know. But if I say God did this because he will bring about his redemptive history to the full consummation of it, that's not speculation, because God has promised that. So the question now is, how does God use Naomi's story of suffering and faithfulness to advance his redemptive history? Let's skip all the way to chapter 4. You have to turn there. I'll have the verse up front here with you. Now, I don't want to spoil the end, but oh well. (laughs) Ruth finally finds a husband in, in Judea. Name is Boaz. Ruth and Boaz had a son. A son Naomi loved so much, people even said that a son has been born to Naomi, although it's Ruth's son, but because Naomi loved it so much, it was addressed to Naomi. Who is this son and why is it significant? Let's read Ruth chapter 4, verse 17. A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Who is David? The one who later became the king of Israel, isn't he? Remember verse 1, this tragic story is under the context of what? When the judges ruled, when lawlessness was in the land, there's no one to lead, there's no one to rule over Israel, injustice was everywhere. Remember how the book of Judges ended? There was no king in Israel, no one to guide them. What are we going to do? Who did David become later? The king of Israel. See, the tension in the book of, at the end of the book of Judges, there's no king to rule, was solved by God through this tragic story. Through the faithfulness and selflessness that Ruth showed Naomi, even in times of grief, which led her back to Bethlehem with her, which God then used to birth David through. And now God's people have a king in David. Restore order in the kingdom, save them from Goliath and the Philistines, protect them from foreign enemies, redeem, rule over them, Thus, God's redemptive history was accomplished through this calamity. Hera. Now, here's the hard part. Almost done. Almost done. Here's the really hard part. If this is the definition of somebody who suffers well, in other words, someone who suffers well is someone who can find joy in the fact that God, through all our trials, will still accomplish his redemptive story. If that's the definition of somebody who suffers well, God will redeem, God will advance his agenda, not my agenda, but his. If that's the definition, that's the hard part, isn't it? Because that means we have to be that kind of person. (laughs) In order to suffer well, we must become somebody who loves the fulfillment of God's redemptive story more than our personal agendas. If you don't, then you'll never find joy in God's promised good at the end of this hera. If you don't care about God's redemptive story, then it's not going to be a joy to you. Because all you care about is your, our personal advancement. That's the hard part. How do I become somebody like that? How do I be somebody who can love God's redemptive story over the fulfillment of my own personal agendas? Well, this happens by seeing, realizing, and consistently remembering that God's redemptive story is not just this big cosmic reality out there that God's going to do for all creation but it's something God did personally for you. What am I talking about? Think about it. God's redemptive story didn't stop in David, did it? There's someone else born out of the descendants of David who will then fulfill God's redemptive story. Who am I talking about? You don't have to go so far. Read the first book of the first chapter of the first verse of the New Testament. Let's go there. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. This is profound. Think about it. God purposed the birth of Jesus Christ, the savior of the world, your savior, my savior, if we're in Christ, to be born through the faithfulness and small, seemingly insignificant, selfless act of widowed villagers who remained faithful in the small obediences, even through suffering, which led her to become the ancestor of Jesus Christ. You see, God's redemptive story through the book of Ruth isn't just this cosmic reality out there. It's personal. You and I are included in it. You and I are saved eternally through it. Our Redeemer and King, Jesus Christ. By the way, who, like Ruth, was not bound by law, to prioritize or sacrifice for us, stay faithful to us, but yet through his suffering on the cross, though he was not bound by law, prioritized us, not forced by some legal obligation, but by his own gracious will, because he loved us, and he chose to die in our place and take the punishment that was meant for us and redeem us from our sin and shame. To suffer well, friends, we must Find confidence that at the end of all this, God will fulfill his promise of salvation. Not advance our own personal agendas, but but his redemptive story that's not just meant for the world out there, but meant for me. And when calamity hits, be honest about how hard it is. Have people you can trust and talk to and be vulnerable with through it. Be okay with ambiguity. Refrain from speculations. God did this because of this or that. We we just don't know. And hold on to his promise that through all of this, his redemptive story will be fulfilled. A story not just for the world out there, a story he did for you and climbed on the cross that this story may be realized. And one day, there will come a time when suffering is no more, but until that day comes, this is how we suffer well by holding fast that through Christ and his cross, you have an all-controlling God, Shaddai, who also went through calamity, Hera, yet remained faithful to you through it all, so that he may redeem you and testify you as innocent through his blood. May we be faithful to him and love his redemptive story in the midst of grief as much as he has remained faithful to us and loved us through his redeeming cross. Pray with me. What a challenging text, Father, you have given us to study, not only in our heads, but also purpose to affect our minds, and our hearts, and our actions, and our wills, and our loves. Father, forgive us that we so often put more intentionality in the big type of Obediences, and care less about the small ones because we, to be honest, at least I care more about public opinion than being faithful to you. And Lord, forgive us that when we suffer, we speculate, we end up feeling what we feel because we love our own personal agendas more than we love your redemptive story. Help us, Lord. Help our weak and fragile hearts that are prone to wonder to be steadfast and held by your mercy that we may now love your story a story not just meant for the world out there but for us personally that we find confidence through whatever suffering your redemptive purposes in us has been accomplished in Christ and you will bring it to full fulfillment at the end you will not let us go and that you will use it through us to be part of your redemptive story in us and in the world help us become lovers of your redemptive history more than lovers of our own personal agenda. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.